I began playing sports when I was about four years old on teams. I started with soccer, football. I loved playing soccer. I loved the, the fast-paced action. I loved the strategy that was involved. There, there wasn't downtime. I loved playing soccer. And as the years went on, other sports were added. T-ball was added. Um, and I, I like T-ball for the most part, but I found out pretty quickly that really anything that had to do with baseball, I didn't enjoy too much. <laughs> then football was added. I really liked football. I liked football. And uh, football was fun until the tackling part of football started. <laughs> I enjoyed the flag football a lot more. They, see, I play quarterback, and so the job of the other team is to, to hurt you if you're a quarterback. So, so football, you know, I played it, but it wasn't something that I, you know, really found tons of joy in. But in second grade, I played on my first basketball team, and something clicked. I loved every second of it. I loved the way the ball felt in my hand, the sound that it made as it bounced on the hardwood, the, the noise of the ball going through the net when it, when it swishes and it doesn't touch the rim. There's just no sound like it in my opinion. Things in basketball were instinctive to me. It was natural. It, it seemed to, to fit with me. It was very, very hard to describe. And to this day, it's hard to describe. But, but in a way, I was created for this. Like, it just worked. It, and, and I found so much joy in it, so much pleasure in it. Psychiatrists have studied the phenomenon of feeling like you were born for something or you were made for something. Dr. Mihai Chikisint Mihai of the University of Chicago named the concept optimal experience or flow. Now, many of you are probably familiar with that language, even though you wouldn't have related it to a psychiatric uh, terminology, but many of you have used this kind of language. When you've seen someone doing something at a very, very high level, you may have heard somebody else say, man, they're in the flow, right? Or they're in the zone. Like they are locked in so much to whatever they're doing that they are doing it at an optimal functional level. Um, I remember watching not too long ago, Michael Phelps, when, uh, what was it? Like nine or 10 medals in one Olympics. Every time that dude jumped in the water, you knew he is locked in, he is in the flow, he is in the zone. And he's, he's going to win a medal. And I think eight of them were gold. Like he's just going to, he's going to win. He was made for this. I remember watching in 2015, Clay Thompson of the NBA, plays for the Golden State Warriors, was watching the highlights of this game. And everyone said, you've got to watch the third quarter. And I thought, okay. So um, I was able to, to, at the time, go and watch the third quarter. And I watched Clay Thompson score 37 points in one quarter, hitting nine threes in his 12 minutes of play. Both of which, by the way, are NBA records. The 37 points and nine threes in one quarter in an in, in NBA record. 
Now, I experienced this a few times. There were a couple times in my life playing basketball where I felt so locked in and in the zone that everything was going right. My senior year, we were playing, um, I believe, Concordia University, um, which I think is in Austin. I think it's in Austin. And uh, we were playing them in a conference game, and the third quarter rolled around. I I didn't drop 37. Um, But... I hit in the second half as the third quarter started, I made six three-pointers and I scored 20 point, 20 straight points for our team. And I, I can't relate to you the, exp- the experience of, it's like all the work that you had put in and everything that you had done, like every muscle fired off at the exact right moment, like not too hard, not too soft, not too much, just the perfect amount of energy. The ball seemed tiny and the, the hoop seemed huge. Y'all, I'm not exaggerating. I would just catch the ball and it matter where I caught it, I would shoot it. And it just went in. And at some point I'm laughing. I go over to my team, uh, the other team calls timeout and I go over to the team and the team wouldn't touch me. The team was like, don't touch him because you don't want to mess it up. Just don't touch him right now. Leave him alone. Let him do his thing. And I I think all of us have experienced in different ways doing something that you felt like you were made for and you found so much pleasure in. I was talking to Dion today about drums and and, and Dion's like, yeah, I I feel like this this is where I get all this joy and excitement and pleasure from doing what I know I was created to do and and you're locked in and you're in the flow and everything just seems right. For a Christian, this phenomenon happens when we walk in the Spirit. When we are using our gifts and talents for the purpose that they were given, for the glory of God, the edification of the church, and the expansion of the kingdom, we were recreated for this. We as Christians experience spiritually and psychologically optimal flow when we are walking in the Spirit of God, loving each other, have you ever just felt so overwhelmed by just feeling like, I, I, I love these people. I love this church. I love the Lord. I love his word. I'm using, I'm using my gifts and talents to bless people. Peter today is going to discuss what it looks like when a Christian is in the flow. When a, when a Christian is in the zone. When a Christian is living for that which they were created and recreated within the community of Christ. And 1 Peter chapter 4 is where he does this. We'll begin in verse 7 and read down through verse 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now before we look at really the four... um, the four ways that we know we're kind of locked in, the, the, the way that we know we're, we're flowing in the Christian community like we should. I want to disc- discuss this very first phrase in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. 
Now, most Western American Christians read that verse, that phrase, and our mind usually and immediately goes to the end of the world. The end of all things is near. Armageddon. That's where our mind goes. That, I don't think that's what Peter's talking about at all here. I don't think Peter's saying, listen, the end of the world is at hand right now upon us. I don't think that's what he's saying. First of all, is the end goal of God's plan for earth to end it? Is that the end goal of God to end the earth? No. The, the end goal for God is to resurrect the earth, renew the earth, restore the earth, not do away with it. So I, I don't think that's what he's saying. Secondly, the phrase is at hand. You see that? The end of all things is at hand. Now, we've seen this before in the New Testament. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. When John the Baptist preaches, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, they don't mean the kingdom of God is just going to come soon. They mean the kingdom of God is here and now among us. So, when we see this here where it says the end of all things is at hand, we should think the end of all things means now among us right here. So Peter is saying that the end of all things is here and now among the first readers of this letter. Well, we're 2,000 years past this, right? So either Peter meant something different or Peter didn't know what he was talking about. And since this is inspired by the Holy Spirit... I'm going to go ahead and say he didn't know what he was talking about. So maybe he meant something different than Armageddon into the world destruction. When we read this kind of language about the end of, the, the, uh, end of all things or um, the end times, so often in the New Testament, it's not talking about the end of the world. It's actually grounding everything in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because Christ's work... The early church is living in the last stage of the redemption plan. Now, when did the redemption plan start? Oh, at the very beginning, right? And it, it came in these stages. It came in, in, in different ways, right? You have the nation of Israel being called and the promised land. And, and you have all of this in the Old Testament, these different stages. But then you come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the last stage of God's salvation plan. It's when Jesus came and it's grounded in his death and resurrection. The proof that this restoration plan, this last stage of the restoration plan or the renewing plan, the proof that it's going on right now is that you're a Christian. Have you been renewed? If you're a Christian, you've been given a brand new heart. You've become, an, you've become a new creation in Christ. You have been, been given, you, uh, become part of this new humanity. And you are being renewed even this very moment. So this renewal that God is doing is the entirety of the church age. So the last stage, we're still in it. They were in it, and we're still in it. So... When he said the end of all things is at hand, it was true for them. And guess what? True for us right now. The end of all things is at hand. In, in chapter 20, or chapter 1, verse 20 of this book, 
It says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. So when was Jesus, was Jesus manifest? Armageddon? Or was he manifest when he became a human being and came to earth? According to Peter, that was the last times. The last, we're so used to hearing last times and end of something and going to the end of the world, but that's not really how the New Testament describes it. The last times, the end is this last portion of God's redemptive plan. Some people call it the age of grace, right? Where we are in this church age, this age of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the last times because it's the last stage and it began when Jesus came. It will end when Jesus comes back, but all of that is considered the end. And if you don't think it's that, if you don't view it that way, then when it says Jesus was manifested in the last times, you're going to be really confused. Peter is simply helping the church to see where they are located in the redemptive renewal history. You exist in this gospel age. And this is where we are today as well. So now that we see that in context, we see where we are in context and where the early church is in context, now we can move to the four practical things that Peter says that let us know we're in the flow, we're in the zone, we're doing church the way it should be done, we're doing this community thing the way that it should be done. First, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Christianity is not a Sunday thing only. Christianity is not a Sunday event kind of religion. No, no question. Sunday is a big day for us. And we, we, we celebrate Easter every single Sunday. So happy Easter to everybody, by the way. For many professing Christians, they kind of see Christianity this way. Work is my weekday thing. Saturday, maybe kids sporting event kind of day or yard work kind of day or lake day or golf day and, and Sunday's church day. But in reality, because Christianity is the renewal of all things through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it spreads to every day. And it spreads to every aspect of our life. If you are a Christian, you are this Christianity, this kingdom, this gospel is, is spreading through every aspect of your life, every day of your life that you live, every moment that you live, this gospel has something to say and empowers you for that moment. And if we're going to believe that, then it means that we have to rightly think about every one of those moments. We have to rightly think about all of these areas. And that requires mental preparation. That requires being in control of our thoughts. Paul says, take every thought captive. Christianity spreads into every thought, and we've got to engage our mind all the time. And that is why, that is what is meant when he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. You're living in the last stage of God's redemption plan. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled means to be in one's right mind, to have a clear, fixed mind. Sober-minded means to have sound judgment. So he's saying, listen, you live in this last stage of, of God's redemption and renewal plan, and you need to live in that stage with a 
right mind, with a clear, fixed mind, with the mind that has sound judgment for the sake of what? Your prayers. A clear, right mind that is spiritually fixed, a clear, right mind that has sound judgment will result in prayer. Prayer that is God-focused, accessing all the spiritual resources and guidance that you need to live every day of your life, to live every second of your life. See, here's the thing. If church is just something that you add to your life, which Brother James has said throughout all the years of his ministry, God is not interested in simply adding church to your life. Right? Well, here's the other things that I have, and then we'll just add church to it as well. That's not what the kingdom of God does. The kingdom of God permeates every bit of your life. And if you are going to live in the flow, in the zone, and locked in to what God has called us to do, then we have to be people with sound judgment, with right fixed thinking, and people that pray that way. Now he, here, he's not talking about prayer requests for sick people or lost people, or, or which, which we should always do. He's talking about the, the accessing the spiritual resources. He's talking about about making sure that what we are praying for is there for us so that we can, um, we can have the guidance that we need as we live every single day, as we attempt to allow the kingdom of God to permeate every area of our life. So that's the first thing he says. Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of prayer. So you want to be locked in? You want to be in the, in the, the kingdom flow? That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says is love one another earnestly, verse 8. Now he says, above all, do this. Above all simply means that this action is of highest importance. It's the highest duty or virtue that a Christian can do for the church. You say, what's the best thing I can do for Calvary Hill? Love these people earnestly. It's the best thing you can do for Calvary Hill. The best action that you can take, the, the thing that is, is of highest importance is to love this people. The greatest is love, is it not? And it says we must do this earnestly. Here's what is meant by that. It's not based on your emotional intensity. There are days where I walk in these doors... And man, I am overwhelmed emotionally with affection toward all of you. And there are days that I am not. Right? There are days when you get on my nerves, church. And there are days when I get on your nerves. And that has nothing to do with whether or not you love me earnestly. Nothing. It is not based on the affection, emotional affection I have in the moment. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. Love one another, but you've got to do it earnestly. Not based on how you feel in the moment, whether or not you love me or not. Church is going to fall apart. Calvary Hill won't exist if that's the attitude we take. We've got to love each other, even if you're driving me crazy today. That's what love is. I'm going to sacrifice for you even if I am not really meshing with you today. You ever seen that picture, that video of the, the older couple who's sitting on a park bench? And the caption reads something uh, uh, to the effect of, 
I'm mad at you, but I still love you. And it shows, it's pouring down rain and it shows this older gentleman sitting on the, on the bench and it's pouring down rain and he's got his umbrella and he could tell he's just mad. He's just like this and he's holding that umbrella over his wife's head. Right? Now we must have gotten a fight before we sat down on this bench and I'm a little upset and a little perturbed and a little frustrated with you, but I still love you. That's how marriage works too, by the way. It's a side note. That's how all love works. And then Peter adds this phrase, and it's very interesting. For love covers a multitude of sin or sins. Very possible that this phrase was a, uh, was a phrase that his, the church was already familiar with. This may have been a phrase that was kind of already used, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. It kind of sounds like a, a, a little saying that would kind of be tossed around. But I want to get at the root of what this means and where it came from. It's actually based on Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. If you want to turn there, you can. If you don't want to, I'm just going to read it. It's just two statements. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. It says this. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. So here we read hatred. Opposite of hatred, love, right? So we have hatred and love as opposites. Now, hatred does something among people. It stirs up strife. It stirs things up. It makes things go to the worst possible extreme. It's constantly stirring things up and getting things riled up and causing issues. And it's constant, right? It's just constant. So if hatred does that stuff and love is the opposite of that, then what does it mean for love to cover offenses? Here's what I think this means. Love does not let wrongs that are done in the Christian community come to their fullest or most severe expression. Are we going to offend one another and sin against one another? Absolutely. It's going to happen all the time. And the more time we spend with each other, the more we will hurt each other and the more we will sin against each other and the more we will offend each other and wrong each other. But what love does is love comes along and instead of stirring all that problem up to let it grow and fester and become this massive full expression that causes division and problems, love comes along and it begins to cover it, push that down and cover that up and and to squash it. Right? So hatred is stirring it up. Love comes along and squashes that stuff. You say, well, well they, didn't, they didn't apologize the way I think they should have. Squash it. Squash it. That's what love does. You know, that person talked rude to me. I'm going I'm, I'm to be upset about this for two months. That, that person may not even admit to be rude to you. You're going to stir it up and stir it up and stir it up and it grows and it grows and it becomes bigger problem and a bigger problem and a bigger problem when what love should have done at the very beginning is say, you know what, maybe they had a terrible day today. And maybe they were a little harsh to me and they didn't even mean to be harsh to me. You know what, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to squash that. I'm going to cover that up. I'm going to walk together in unity with this person. 
You see the difference of stuff getting constantly stirred up and growing and growing and then love constantly squashing it and pushing it down and moving it aside so that you can walk in unity. And I think that's what he's saying. Love each other earnestly, even if you don't feel like it all the time, because love covers a multitude of sin. Love squelches stuff and squashes stuff and pushes stuff away and doesn't let it fester and destroy relationships. Me and my wife have been together married for 21 years. And the reality is there has been a bunch of times where she has offended me and I have offended her that we haven't asked for forgiveness perfectly with one another. There's times where well, she'll say something to me in a certain way or I'll say something to her in a certain way and I'll just be like, what? Well, that was rude. Oh, well, hey, babe, you know, we were. You move on. Don't let it just settle in there and then cause all that strife to rise up. Then he says, the third one, show hospitality to one another. So you want to know if you're in the flow and you're locked in, you're sober-minded, you're self-controlled, you're praying for guidance, you are loving each other, you're squashing stuff, you're pushing it down, and now you're going to show hospitality to one another. What does it mean to be hospitable? Most of us immediately think of like welcoming people into your home, right? You know, you're hospitable, you welcome people into your home. And I think that's a result of, of being hospitable. I think that's one of the effects of being hospitable. But I think really hospitality has more to do with an attitude of open heartedness. Your heart is open to people. You're not closed off from people. You're open. You make people feel welcome. You make people feel loved. You make people feel comfortable. You ever been around somebody where you just never can feel comfortable around them? Like they're always just kind of putting you on edge and you just... Here he's talking about an attitude of open-heartedness toward other people no matter what their need is. When Listen, we live in a wide crazy, sinful world, and we're going to get beat up out there, we're going to get mistreated out there, and we're going, to, we're going to suffer and struggle out there. And when you walk into church, you know what you really need? You need about 150, 200 people who are going to have open-heartedness toward you, who will warmly welcome you when the world's been beating you up. That's what you need. You need to be able to walk in these doors... No matter where you're from, no matter what color you are, no matter what your background is, your economic status, you, no matter what, any of that, you need to be able to walk in these doors and see a bunch of people with open arms saying, come in, we'll love you in here. We'll give you a warm welcome in here. We'll make you feel like you're somebody in here when everybody else has made you feel like nobody out there. That's why we call our teenage ministry refuge. And do this without complaining. I mean, it's not based on love if you're griping about it the whole time. Well, come on in here. I will love you. That didn't really make somebody feel good, does it? Man, I tell you what, that church over there, they just love me so much. I mean, they are never happy about it, but I mean, they seem to, they always do it. So we're in the zone if we self-controlled and sober-minded and praying for guidance. We're, we're in the, the kingdom flow if we're loving each other earnestly and squashing stuff. We're in the flow if we show hospitality to one another without complaining. And then he ends with, use your gifts to serve one another. Each believer has received a gift from God. Actually, gifts from God that are varied. 
They come to you through the Holy Spirit. Spirit. These gifts are gifts of grace. That's why they're called gifts. If they weren't of grace, then we couldn't call them gifts. That wouldn't make any sense. In reality, they're not yours actually at all. They belong to God. They are given to you for you to steward. It's what Peter says. Steward these gifts for one another. They're not yours. God is giving them to you by grace through the power of the Holy Spirit for you to steward them and use them for other people. To serve one another. Your gift is not first and foremost for you. Now, you will get great pleasure when you use your gift, but you really find the greatest pleasure when you use your gift for somebody else. That's when you really feel like you're locked in. Peter uses the phrase, the one who speaks and the one who serves. Here he's just simply summing up all the gifts. Instead of making a list of the gifts... He's summing them up. It's similar to what Paul says in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do it as unto the Lord. Every gift that you're going to get is either going to be a word deed or a serve deed. You're either gonna, it's either going to be used because you speak or used because you act. And so he's summing it up. He's saying, listen, if your gifts are speaking gifts then speak the oracles of God. Speak it in the power of God's name. If your gifts are serving gifts, then use those in the power of God. I mentioned in chapter 1 in a message, and I'll mention it again, Christians will face various trials. You remember this? Various trials. Here we have varied gifts, varied graces. God gives us the grace that we need for the various trials. Now let me add something to it. Usually he gives us what we need for our various trials through our brothers and sisters in Christ's gifts. So if, if you are going through a various trial, the, the grace that you need is usually going to come from the community of Christ. That's how it should work. You shouldn't be having to deal with this stuff on your own and by yourself. That is not how God made us. God has given us one another so that when you walk in these doors, people have gifts and some of them are speaking gifts and some of them, these are serving gifts. And you walk in these doors and you've got various trials going on. And then other people in this room begin to love you and serve you through their gifts to help you in these various trials. All the grace we need. We are to be here for our church community. Evident in this passage. Four practical ways. Being a person that is sober-minded and self-controlled in their prayers. Lovingly squashing wrongs. Warmly being open-hearted. And using our various gracious gifts to bless others. Church, if we did those four things... Do you understand how locked in we would be? Do you understand the kingdom flow that would be going on around here? I'm not saying we don't do these things. I'm just saying if we make it the desire of our heart, Lord, I want to be this for my church. If every single person in this room decided, I want to be this for Calvary Hill. 
I want to be this. I want to be a person of prayer who is, who is asking for guidance so that I can live with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to lovingly squash wrongs and sins that may arise. I, I want to live with this warm, open-heartedness for other people, and I want to use my gifts and my talents to bless others. If we did what we were recreated for, we would be extremely productive for the kingdom of God. Now I wanted to save 10 minutes. Ooh, 13 minutes. I, I wanted to save this to talk about something that I just find fascinating. Um, I, I've done this before and I'll do it again. The sermon's kind of over um, as far as preaching the text. But I, but I want to I talk about something that I find super, super interesting and I find it really, really neat and I think it can apply to the things that we've been talking about today. Have you ever had, had someone, or maybe you've said it yourself, that somebody just has a wonderful spirit about them? You ever said that about somebody, right? Man, this person just has a, a, a wonderful spirit about them. Like, I, I just love being around them because the, the spirit that they have, the, and, and we, we mean a lot of things by that, but I, I certainly think there's a spiritual aspect to that. There is a, a sense in which... This person may have a, a, a sweet spirit about them, a loving spirit about them. And I think they, they walk into a room and they, they make the room better. The collective feeling of the room grows. We know that God has made us this way spiritually. But over the last several years, there has been great research done by neurologists and psychologists on the physical aspects of this reality in our minds. According to Dr. Kirk Thompson, he is a uh, neurological doctor, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, all those big words. He defines the mind this way. So I'm going to define the mind, and then I'm going to break down each of those points, how Kirk Thompson does, okay? Here's how he defines the mind in a neurological sense. The mind is a totally embodied, relational, emerging process whose task it is to regulate energy and information. Now, you probably heard that and went, say what? First time I heard that, I went, say what? That's why I'm going to break these down real quick. First, it is totally embodied. When we talk about the mind, we're not simply talking about the brain, are we? There's more to it than just the brain. But the mind, just like it needs the brain, it also needs all of the other physical things that we are. The mind is totally embodied in this physical being that we are. Make sense so far? Second thing. It is relational. Your mind, the development of your mind requires other people. You know that your mind cannot develop by itself? When you are born, you, your brain and your mind and all that comes with it, the, the neurons and everything that are firing off, they all develop, about 20% of them develop on their own. The other 80% of your development comes in relationship to other people. Your neurons find their location and their place. They fire off the way they're supposed to fire off. They grab a hold of things they're supposed to grab a hold of only in proper relationship with other people. That is why when a baby cries, what's the first thing we do? We pick them up. 
We hold them. We look at them. We talk. We smile. We want them to know everything's okay. We've, I've got you. All of that, all of that relational stuff begins to develop the mind more and more and more. So it's relational. In order for the other 80% of your mind to grow and to mature and to connect where it's supposed to, you have to be relating to other human beings. That makes total sense too, doesn't it? So it's embodied and it's relational. Third, it is emerging. This process of our mind maturing and growing and changing never ends. You know that your mind will change today? Not I'll change my mind and I was going to go get, you know, Mexican food, but now I'm going to go get Italian food instead. Even though that's an element of it. We don't control anything, do we? I woke up this morning having a plan of what I think this day was going to go like, right? And my mind begins to, to formulate how this day is going to go. But then something happens that I'm not in control of. And it literally changes what's going on in my mind. My mind begins to change. Neurons change. They fire off differently. Things happen in my mind because things change during the day. So what this means is on any given day, depending on what happens, our minds, including our feelings, will be affected by countless things for better or worse. So our minds are constantly emerging or changing. The beauty that we see in the world is at least in part because our minds work together. Circumstances work together. When, when you see this band functioning up here, this only works because their minds are working together. Yes, they're working separately, right? We got a drummer that's got a drum. We've got a bass player that's got a bass. Bass player that's got a bass. A piano player that's got a piano. We got a guitar player that's got a guitar. And we got singers that are all singing different parts. So they all have their individual thing. But the way that their minds are working is they're actually relating to everybody else's minds so that all the beauty can come from this stage. But the minds have to relate to one another. So when we say it is emerging, we're saying it's constantly changing. Our minds are constantly either getting better or getting worse. And then lastly, it says, and what I mean by that, it, let me say this. Our minds are not just sitting over here maturing all by themselves. It takes interactions with others so our minds can emerge into a better and better reality all the time. And then lastly, it regulates energy and information. Anything that comes out of us, Anything that we sense, we try to make sense of, right? Anything that our senses sense, we try to make sense of. We turn it into a story. Ooh, that person was rude to me. And that person probably doesn't like me. That per- and all of a sudden, we start making a story about what we've just sensed. Our minds do this all the time. So our minds are regulating information that is coming to us, regulating energy that is coming to us. There is energy, you know you, you know you are an electromagnetic person, right? You are literally giving off elect- electrical currents off of you. This energy that is exchanged between people is happening all the time. It is something that neuroscience is learning more and more about, but it is happening in all kinds of nonverbal ways. Sometimes someone can give you a look. Next thing you know, you've created a whole story about that look. Right? You just regulated a bunch of information that came at you. They didn't even say a word. They weren't even looking at you. 
But you thought they were looking at you, so you created the story in your mind, this person doesn't like me, and now there's this energy between the two of you that wasn't there before. So the mind, let's go back to the definition, the mind is totally embodied, it's relational, it's constantly emerging and changing, and it regulates energy and information. You're saying, Neil, why are you telling us this? Well, I had 13 minutes, now I have five, so... I'm using up my time, church. But here's why, I, here's why I say it. When you walk into a room, the room changes. Spiritually, but also just from a neuroscience standpoint, the energy you give off by your mind that is totally embodied and relating to other people and emerging and gathering information and making sense of that information, when you walk into a room, you are going to make that room better or worse. The way that you think, the look on your face, the posture of your body, and the endless amounts of physical energy that you display is being processed by other people and turned into a story that becomes their reality. Let me say that again slowly. The way that you think, the look on your face, the posture of your body, the endless amounts of physical energy that you display is being processed by other people and turned into a story by others and becomes their reality. So, as we become more spiritually healthy people, as we become more emotionally and mentally healthy people, we're going to change this room for the better with our presence. And I, I wanted to bring this up because I want you to see this isn't this. This is very spiritual. What I just said to you in the last 10 minutes. I don't want you to think that ain't spiritual. This is the way God made us so that we can help each other better. It, it's but I, but I want us to see. Yes, there is what we call, quote unquote, the spiritual aspect, right? Loving one another, serving one another, welcoming one another, using our gifts for one another. But even neurologically, neurologically, the way that God has made our minds ministers to people. The makeup of our energy ministers to people. Have you ever seen somebody who just, they're, they're constantly just mopey about everything? Can they not walk in a room and instantly change the whole dynamic of the room? They don't say a word. Have you ever seen someone be using their gift moping around? It's not really a blessing, is it? You know? I mean, what if somebody just got up here and sang and they were just like, and your children, and your children, may his face shine upon you. Your children, your children. You wouldn't be sitting out there going, what a blessing. Now, technically, they're using their gift singing a song. But it's a to this is a, a total being approach. Your entire makeup, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, your entire makeup is to be growing 
and maturing and getting healthier and loving Jesus more so that you can be a bigger blessing to everybody else in this room. Even the way our neurological makeup is. So if you take everything that we've talked about today, you can see the massive impact you can have on the Christian community. As we all go from here and we go live in our wild worlds, you can see the massive impact you can have on one another. And church, I really believe God's doing something at Calvary Hill. I, I got done Wednesday night. I came downstairs. I literally said to God, I, got, I, I walked down off the stairs out of refuge. I hit the hallway. I turned like this and I said, I don't know what you're doing, but you're up to something. I feel it. I don't know what that means. God's got, but he's up to something. He's always up. Aslan's always on the move. Google it. Let me pray.